0: Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Remind us that we are meeting the Israelites here in the wilderness, having been redeemed out of Egypt by the Lord in mighty ways. That the Israelites are beginning their new life of freedom as subjects of the Lord, where They had been uh, brought up in Israel as subjects of Pharaoh. Now having been delivered, they are being brought up as subjects of the Lord. Yet there is a wilderness between them and Canaan. And as we have recognized last week and were reminded this week, that between them and Canaan is also a mountain. Whereby the Lord will pledge many a wonderful things to them on the condition of their obedience, obedience. And this is all in fulfillment of His promise to Abraham, to provide through him a nation and a land, and even in a greater way, as it carried on the promise of Genesis 3, where He would provide an offspring through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so we come now to the covenant ceremony at Sinai where these previously nomadic then enslaved people were brought into covenant bonds with the great promiser of Genesis 3 the maker of heaven and earth i'll be uh, just uh, i'll be preaching on Exodus 20 verses 1 and 2 but for context we'll be reading Exodus 20 verses 1 through 21 hear the word of the lord then god spoke all these words saying I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or on the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery you shall not steal shall not bear false witness against your neighbor you shall not covet your neighbor's house you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But let not God speak to us, or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of him may remain on you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance While Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for help once more. O Lord, after having heard your word, we in our hearts do tremble. Yet, Lord, may it not be a trembling of fear of judgment as those who are found in Christ's they have a fear and trembling of joy inexpressible as we find all that is foreshadowed and typified here in the Old Testament as fulfilled and they find their yes and amen in Christ. So we may with joy receive this word so we, not be, so we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as a way of reminding us as we come to this section of the Mosaic Covenant and the giving of the law and the stipulations regarding uh, this covenant at Sinai, I'll remind us that here we join the Divine Author's intention of revealing to us the mysteries of Christ, contained in type and shadow within the Old Testament as a testimony to us, That Christ as the scope of scripture is the referent point of all of the history of the church and even this age as a whole. It is out of its literal understanding and with help from the divine author and subsequent revelation, we have our foundation to see its anticipatory character. As I brought to our attention last week, John Owen says that God was here represented in all the outward demonstrations of infinite holiness, justice, Severity and terrible majesty, on the one hand, and on the other, men in their lowest condition of sin, misery, guilt, and death. If there be not, therefore, something else to interpose between God and men, someone somewhat to fill up the space between infinite severity and inexpressible guilt, all this glorious preparation was nothing but a theater, set up for the pronouncing of judgment and the sentence of eternal condemnation against sinners. So, as I would remind us from last week, these hermeneutical principles that we come before this text, I would also remind us of its redemptive historical setting where we find the the functionality of the Abrahamic covenant is to bring about the church, state, nation of Israel, for Abraham's covenant is foundational to the Mosaic. As a covenantal foundation, we find in the Scripture, subsequent covenants are made with the same parties, Abraham's offspring, in the same kingdom realm, Canaan, with the same promises, blessed life in Canaan, with the same precepts, or additional laws, and the same penalties, that is, disinheritance. Therefore, what is commonly known as the Old Covenant began with Abraham and ought to be viewed collectively in such a way that the Old Covenant includes the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, and then also the future, in our context, the the future Davidic Covenant. So the Covenant of Grace was more fully revealed to Abraham compared to Adam, But the formal covenant which God established with Abraham was not the covenant of grace. The Mosaic Covenant is the development of the Abrahamic Covenant in which he would fulfill nationally to Abraham's descendants. In the Mosaic Covenant, God declares blessings he intends to pour out on Israel. But for the Israelites to enjoy the blessings, they must keep the covenant. They must keep the law. And so as we, again, come before... we we, pause and remind ourselves of these things because we're coming to the holy word of god and we're coming to what is known as the ten commandments or the ten words these are this is the opening uh, crescendo this is the opening word of god's conditions as it relates to the mosaic covenant as it relates to israel and their reception of the blessings of the Mosaic Covenant. What we will see and find in this is that the law is good. That the law is good. It's often within Christianity, an attitude of animosity is engendered towards the law of God. For when we come before it, we find that according to God's standards, we are murderers, adulterers, we are thieves, we are liars, we are covetors. We do not, or we use the Lord's name in vain. We are idol worshippers, and we certainly do not uphold the Lord solely in our hearts and have no other gods before him. And we are Sabbath breakers. And so we have this attitude, as we're reminded of these things, of animosity towards the law of God. The outcome, though, being the idea, the false outcome or the bad outcome, is that the idea that the law is bad and should be avoided altogether. So that when we come to the Ten Commandments, and certainly we'll see how Christ fulfills them and and we'll go through them and see how the glories of the righteousness of our Savior, certainly the glories of the holiness of our God, we would not then throw the baby out with the bathwater as it said but then but that we might bring the law then and see it as good see it as a gift to us who desire to please our savior and there's a certain amount of understanding in this thinking that the law is bad for the apostle paul in galatians 3:10 says for As many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Here he's quoting the last verse of Deuteronomy 27, where all the curses of breaking the law were laid out. And then it closes by saying, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, to perform them. Yet, it is the law is not bad. The law is good. Though because of our sin, the law condemns us. Yet, it is not bad in nature, for Paul in Romans affirmed that the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. We'll have opportunity to look at the law in its Function in Israel, especially as we go through the Ten Commandments and the and the rest of the laws, for coupled with the Ten Commandments, as we see the Lord uh, laying before the people of Israel His standard, we find that the Lord not only brings His standard of of righteousness or His conditions of the covenant. But he also provides them graciously a sacrificial system whereby they may be reconciled to God according to the Mosaic Covenant after having broke his law. Yet the law remains holy and the commandment remains holy, righteous, and good. And these are uh, words of Paul echo the words of the psalmist in Psalm 19 speaking of the, the law of God, they are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. I don't know if you feel that way about God's law, spe- speaking of the Ten Commandments in its principled form. I don't know if you've been brought up in the church to despise God's law because all it does is show you your sin and show you your imperfection well as much as it is of use for the law to be a mirror to us where we are to see our imperfection and see the perfection of our God and ultimately the perfection of our Savior as well as it does provide another use where it, 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 it hinders us it, it restricts us From being as evil as we might be without it. We must ultimately see a third use as believers in Christ. Because to be a believer in Christ is to possess the mind of Christ as we will see. And to possess the mind of Christ is to love the law of God. Is to love His commandments. So then, we as those who have been bought with the precious blood of Christ have been given the mind of Christ so that we would love God's law and say with Him, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. So then, we as those who have been bought with the precious blood of Christ have been given the mind of Christ So that we would love God's law and say with Him, "Oh, how I love Your law! It is my meditation all the day." So, as we approach the Ten Commandments, as we approach the opening of the conditions and stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant, we're going to look at its function specifically within the Mosaic Covenant. We'll just be doing an introduction here, and so it's its function within the Mosaic Covenant its foundation, and its fulfillment with a a goal that we who possess the mind of Christ would love God's law. And so its function within the Mosaic Covenant. Here the Ten Commandments begin with a repetition of God's powerful deliverance. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of, of slavery. An event that both establishes the basis for his dealing with Israel and continues his dealings with the descendants of Abraham. So God's demand for loyalty is based on what he has done for Israel. Nevertheless, Israel must be faithful in order to remain in the blessings Of the covenant. And so we'll see that within the Mosaic covenant there's a works principle, that it is not a recapitulation or republication of the covenant of works that we find in the garden, whereby Adam was offered and proffered a better existence. an eternal righteousness of blessed uh, existence with God, him and all his posterity. This offered to Adam in the garden, if only he would obey God in all that he has said, and all that is required of him as a creature. That covenant of works only exists to condemn, for it was broken in Adam. In Adam, we all die. In Adam, we're all cursed according to that covenant. Yet come along the Mosaic Covenant, and we find that though it doesn't republish the covenant of works, it comes in its shadow as it was. It comes with an understanding that here as a a tutor and as a guide to the Israelites and certainly to us, that the Lord is holy and righteous and just. And he will excuse no one of their sin, apart from those who have the required righteousness. And so we find in the Mosaic Covenant a works principle. But coupled with it, because it's also post-Genesis 3, whereby the Lord promised to put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. Post-Genesis 3, we also find a gracious addition to this, so that the covenant, a covenant of works doesn't exist on its own, but it's coupled here with a graciousness of God, whereby He provides them the sacrificial law, the ceremonial laws of Israel, where they may be restored to God according to this covenant, and brought back into fellowship with him as their people and he as their God. And so he sets up this um, understanding where he will deal with the Israelites individually as well as corporately. Because there's a corporate dealing that God comes to the Israelites with. Whereby he had promised something to Abraham. Well, he promised something to Adam. And then he carries that in to Abraham, further developing it. And now he carries it into the Mosaic Covenant, and eventually to, through the Davidic Covenant, whereby when Christ comes on the scene, he comes as the fulfillment of all that promise. And so these covenants, they carry along that promise. We use the word subservient. They, they serve the covenant of grace. They don't; they are not the covenant of grace, but they serve and they deliver it in their redemptive historical context and so as we get into this introduction of the law this all brings into it we all it all comes into it here as we begin with these opening words i am the lord your god who brought you out of the land of egypt and out of the house of slavery this is uh this works principle is very clearly set forth in deuteronomy chapter 30 let's turn there together if you can The Lord gives the Israelites a law uh, that is contextually appropriate for the wilderness. And it, and it's the organi- it becomes, begin, begins to organize the people of Israel as into a nation group. Yet they are a nomadic nation. They don't have a land. They don't possess any, any borders. And so it's rightly that on now the precipice of Canaan, the Lord re-gives them the law expanding it in many ways to apply it to now an actual border nation state and we find that in Deuteronomy and in Deuteronomy 30 in verse 15 is a summation of what he has given them now here in the re-giving of the law he says see i have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. So this establishes the Mosaic Covenant as a a covenant of works for life in the land of Canaan. The Mosaic Covenant did not offer eternal life. Transgressing the Mosaic Covenant does not, in and of itself, in its transgression, transgression against the Mosaic Covenant, condemn anyone to death. Neither, by obedience to the Mosaic Covenant, is eternal life offered. One of the things that Christ was correcting of the Pharisees when he came on the scene was that the Pharisees sought righteousness through the law they said we can do it we just try hard enough and we just have enough rules to follow we can be righteous before god and christ points them away from that idea and he points them to himself he says you read the old testament scriptures and you search for eternal life and he says that is good to look for eternal life in the old testament the old testament Though we could say broadly is categorized as law, Christ says eternal life is found in it, but not according to the law, according to promise. And he says, if you have read Moses, then you have read of me. And So we come back to this idea that the Mosaic covenant is a covenant of works for life in the land of Canaan. John Owen, commenting on the Mosaic covenant as not offering eternal life, says, This covenant, this covenant at Sinai, thus made with these ends and promises, did never save nor condemn any man eternally. All that lived under the administration of it did attain eternal life or perished forever, but not by virtue of this covenant as formally such. And he quotes 2nd. Uh, Corinthians 3.9 for by the deeds of the law can no flesh be justified and on the other hand it directed, it, it directed also unto the promise which was the instrument of life and salvation unto all that did believe but as unto what it had of its own it was confined unto things temporal believers were saved under it but not by virtue of it. Sinners perished eternally under it, but by the curse of the original law of works. And so as we come to the opening salvo of the Ten Commandments, its reminder of who God is in his nature as a redeemer, as a saver, as a, uh, as a rescuer, we come to now a presentation of his law, and he doesn't give them a bad thing. He gives them a very good thing. For it would uh, progress Israel. It would set them apart from all the other nations of the world. What a wonderful blessing it was, even if it was temporal, what a wonderful blessing it was for Israel to be set apart by God. God. As his chosen covenant people. Yet the Lord was doing more than just covenanting with Israel. For he was setting up. He was continuing to work out his redemption plan. To bring about the savior of all nations. And so we see that this Mosaic Covenant established as a covenant works is given a law and this law is not bad but it is good we have to we have to conclude that from this that the law is good because it speaks first in its context clearly to the Israelites as to the conditions and stipulations of their covenant how are they to receive blessing obey the law how are you to be cursed disobey but That grace element, the the carrying along, the preservation of this people, we find what happens when you break the law? How can you be restored? Through this ceremonial law. And so we find in this law that it is good. And why do I keep pounding on that? It's because we as a people of Christ... As we will see, we have a people who affirm in the righteousness imputed to us by faith alone, from Christ alone. We find that we cannot be opposed to God's law. We cannot be opposed to his moral law. And I, and I say moral law because as we will see, there, there is a setting apart of these ten words, of these, of these ten commandments that separates them from this law of God And the law of the covenant, where we find in it judicial and ceremonial laws. And though we we even find within the Ten Commandments, there's a ceremonial aspect to it, as it relates to its, um, what we'll talk about is between substance and form, as it relates to its circumstances. And so we see that the Sabbath year is commemorated on the seventh day. We find the uh, promises attached to generationally as it relates to natural generation from one household or from what father to son to grandson and so on. But what we do find here is that what's understood uh, by all of our Reformed fathers is that the law is good and it is contained and summarized the moral law is summarized in the ten commandments. Further coming into this idea that the that that the law is good as we move from its function to its foundation, turn with me to Psalm one nineteen. I'll begin in verse one and be reading through uh, verse one seventy six. That's my favorite joke and it's Pains me, you don't like it. <laughs> no. Uh, Psalm 119 is, is this uh, extensive treatment as to the Word of God and as it relates also to the law of God. And in Psalm 119 and verse 137, we read, Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright. Are your judgments? You have commanded your testimonies in righteousness and exceeding faithfulness. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. You have commanded your testimonies in righteousness and exceeding faithfulness. You see how the psalmist here begins with God and who he is and his righteous existence, his holiness. His justice. And then he sees what reflects this. What has been given to us that reflects this. His judgments. His testimonies. His commandments. They They testify to God's righteousness. His holiness. His justice. R.C. Sproul said the law reflects the will of the lawgiver. And in that regard, it is intensely personal. The law reflects to the creature the perfect will of the creator and at the same time reveals the character of that being whose law it is. The law of God proceeds from God's being and reflects his character. The foundation of the law. Why do we say it? why do we want to affirm the law is good because God is good. And the law reflects his character. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 33, as we will see that the law is good. But what about the giving of the law? Is there something different from the giving of the law than the law itself? In Deuteronomy 33, Thirty-three. This is the blessing which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. In verse 2, he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on, dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand there was flashing lightning for them. And then look at verse 3. Indeed, he loves the people. All your holy ones are in your hand, and they followed in your steps. Everyone receives of your words. Moses connects here by inspiration of God in his final days. He wants the Israelites to know that the law was given to them out of God's love out of God's love. Indeed, he loves the people. All your holy ones are in your hand and they followed your steps. That's what he comes to right after his right hand in at his right hand there was flashing lightning for them. The giving of the law was an expression of his love towards the Israelites. The giving of the law was an expression of his love towards the Israelites. He wasn't—he um, wasn't being sadistic. He wasn't seeking their pain. He was seeking their blessing. He put before them life and prosperity, as it said in other parts of Deuteronomy. I wonder if this is what caused King David to write. Verse 97 of Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. We certainly must come before the law. And we must see that it exposes our unrighteousness. So that we would never dare to come before God in our own righteousness that we would never come before the Lord and say all these commandments I have done from since my youth does that sound familiar the rich young ruler we should not come before Christ and say all these commandments I have kept we come before Christ and say I have broken everyone grievously and continue to break them have mercy on me have mercy on me Yet, having received that mercy, having received that saving love, it should lead us and excite us in grateful in, in, in a grateful love expressed in obedience. These things please you, Lord, but I can't do them. These things reflect your righteousness and they expose my unrighteousness. Save me. For those of us that have put our faith in Christ and have received Christ's righteousness through that faith, we don't then just go off and say, I get to be whatever I want to be and do whatever I want to do. For in like ways, the Israelites, redeemed out of Egypt, freed from their bondage, were now subjects of the Lord. It was a blessing to be a subject of the Lord. So for us, how much greater a blessing is it to be subjects of Christ, freed from this present evil age, freed from this present darkness, brought into his glorious light so that saving love leads to and excites grateful love expressed in obedience. It is important that as we've seen its function and and we've seen its foundation that we must also see and recognize its fulfillment turn with me to Matthew Matthew chapter 2 We're going to be for me I'm going to be turning pages I don't know your font size and your bible size but you'll probably be turning pages with me we're going to do a, a quick overview of four chapters of Matthew so that you see something as to Matthew's arrangement of his gospel. Matthew's arrangement of his gospel as he writes um, to the Hebrews, as it's stated by um, those that have gone before us, is for, is intended for him to show that Christ comes as the true Israelite as true Israel so that as he retraces Israel's steps and shows to be successful, shows to be um, unfaltering that the Jews would look now unto him as their savior, as their Messiah and for us to rejoice in the wonder of his grace and through that the inclusion of the Gentiles In chapter 2, we find Christ escaping to Egypt so that, in verse 15, this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. They're quoting Hosea 11, but alluding to Exodus, where he says, That Israel is his firstborn Israel is his son Out of Egypt I called my son Christ has an exodus Out of Egypt From the exodus The Israelites go into the wilderness From Christ's exodus he goes Or excuse me From the exodus the Israelites Go through the Red Sea From Christ's exodus he goes Into the waters baptism and he's baptized by John the Baptist where the Lord the Father confers upon the son that he this is my son in whom I am well pleased this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased from the Red Sea and into the wilderness Christ from his baptism into the wilderness testing In Matthew 4, where he's met with the accuser, the accuser of the brethren. He's met with Satan, the deceiver. Here, not hearkening just back to Israel in their time in the wilderness, but hearkening all the way back to the garden, where the last Adam does not succumb to the temptation of the serpent, but refutes him. And is victorious over him. And then from the Exodus. To the Red Sea. To the wilderness and then to the mountain. Christ comes from out of Egypt. To his baptism. To the wilderness testing. To Matthew 5. And the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus saw the crowds. He went up on the mountain And after he sat down His disciples came to him Moses goes up to the mountain And receives the law of God It's received with thundering And lightning And outward displays Of God's majesty and severity Here on the Sermon on the Mount Where the Ten Commandments Begin are, uh, are laid out in negative commandments, we find that Christ teaches them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemaker. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of Righteousness. Does Christ bring the beatitudes, the uh, display of God's ki- of the kingdom character, or the character of God's kingdom citizens before these people? Because He does away with the law, because He just He removes it out of its relevance. Now what does he say in verse 17? Do not think that I came to abolish the law, or prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill it. To fulfill. And then he exclamation points it. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Christ says that he came to fulfill the law. He comes as one born under the law, a Jew born under the law. So he comes to fulfill, under the Mosaic Covenant, he comes to fulfill the Mosaic Covenant. But not to bring about eternal life through the Mosaic Covenant. But to see that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. So that all that the prophets prophesied about, that one will come, a David's son will come, and he will bring blessing to the nations. That he will gather all in his name. All will come to him. But further, he comes to accomplish what Adam failed to do. He comes in obedience to his covenant of works that eternal covenant of redemption, establishing the covenant of grace so that those who are united to Christ in that covenant are now free to receive his law not as a measure of righteousness but as an opportunity to display our gratitude for such a wonder of deliverance. Richard Barcellos, in commenting on the enduring relevance of the moral law, says Protestant scholasticism taught that the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, summarily contains the moral law and is the inscripturated form of the natural law as to its substance. The Westminster Larger Catechism, question 98, says the moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. It refers to the fact that the substance is articulated in the propositions of the decalogue as contained in exodus 20 and deuteronomy 5. the form however fits the redemptive historical circumstances in which it was given the substance is the underlying principles and they're always relevant and applicable to man the application or the form may shift based on redemptive historical changes such as the inauguration of the new covenant, but its substance and utility never changes. So, as we engage with the Ten Commandments over the coming weeks, we're going to engage with them as they're useful to us as believers in Christ. Not as a, not as a, a way to be righteous before God, but as a standard of those who are blessed by the one who has fulfilled the law I was thankfully blessed by Spurgeon's morning and evening devotion this week and even doubly blessed as it was brought to my attention by my wife Spurgeon commenting on Psalm 119.2 in the New King James it says quicken thou me in thy way and Spurgeon says the psalmist confesses that he is dull, heavy, lumpy, all but dead. And perhaps you feel the same. We are so sluggish that the best motives cannot quicken us. Apart from the Lord himself, what will quicken what will us? Will not hell quicken me? Shall I think of sinners perishing and yet not be awakened? Will not heaven quicken me? Can I think of the reward that awaiteth the righteous and yet be cold? Will not death quicken me? Can I think of dying and standing before my God and yet be so slothful in my master's service? Will not Christ's love constrain me? Can I think of his dear wounds? Can I sit at the foot of his cross and not be stirred with fervency and zeal? It seems so. No mere consideration can quicken us to zeal, but God himself must do it. Hence the cry, quicken thou me. The psalmist breathes out his whole soul in vehement pleadings. His body and his soul unite in prayer. Turn away mine eyes, says the body. Quicken thou me, cries the soul. This is a fit prayer for every day. O oh Lord, hear it in my case this day. So we find that we don't turn now to our own efforts to obey God's law. We turn back to God to be quickened, to be enlivened, to obey the law that reflects his character. And so we as those who who have been bought with the precious blood of Christ have been given the mind of Christ so that we would love God's law and say with him, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. May this be a meditation this day as we have considered what we have in Christ. Let's pray. O Lord, the wonders of your gospel that frees us from the bondage and condemnation of sin, that is a transgression of your holy law. We are freed from that condemnation. Not to live lawlessly, but by your goodness, to live lawfully in gratitude for righteousness we never could could attain to, for eternal life, for a sure inheritance. What a wonder your grace and mercy is for it leaves us always to be in dependence of you and never in our own ability and in our own way. Help us, Lord. Help us for we are dull of ears, We are sluggish. But you are faithful. Help us to love your law. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.